Welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 27th of April, 2022. The topic was mental health support following natural disasters. On the panel, we had Anita Savage, Acting Director of Disaster and Public Health Emergencies at Phoenix, Australia. Amy Jocelyn, a clinical psychologist at the Black Dog Institute. And Melissa, our lived experience representative. Chairing this session is Dr. Carol Newell. Hey, welcome everyone um, to our podcast tonight um, on Expert Insights for Health Professionals. Tonight's topic is on mental health support following natural disasters. Before we get started, I want to give my acknowledgement of country. Um, the Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first people and our traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identity, and continuing connection to country, waters, kin, and community. I want to pay my respects to elders past and present, and we're committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. So without further ado, I want to introduce our amazing panel members tonight. We've got Anita Savage, um, Amy Jocelyn, and Melissa, our lived experience representative. Anita, welcome to tonight's podcast. Thank you so much for giving up an evening. Can you tell us a little bit about your background expertise um, on this topic? Hi, Carol. Hi, everyone. It's really great to be joining you this evening to discuss this really important topic. Um, uh, my background is in psychology and trauma, so I'm a clinical and counselling psychologist by qualification. Um, at Phoenix, Australia, where I've been for about three and a half years, I'm normally in the role of senior clinical specialist. I'm currently in the acting director role for disaster and public health emergencies, um, which has been a really interesting opportunity um, and uh, it's been a really great um, time to be able to work with many of the communities that are currently impacted by disaster. So in that role, uh, I predominantly work in our policy and practice area. So what we do is we take research and translate that to what that means on the ground for people that have been impacted by trauma or those that are working to support people impacted by trauma. Um, so we work with a range of high-risk organisations as well as trauma-impacted communities. Um, as you mentioned, I do a lot of um, training work as well through Phoenix Australia. We deliver a lot of training on various topics related to trauma and its impact. Um, and prior to joining Phoenix, I worked in the emergency services sector for about a decade. So I'm based in, in Melbourne in Victoria and I've worked at um, Ambulance Victoria and Victoria Police there. Um, so I really have a strong interest in trauma and its impacts and how we can support people to recover. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks, Anita. Amy, what about you? Welcome to tonight's podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. We've got Amy Jocelyn here. Hi, Carol and everyone. Um, thank you for having me here today. I'm a clinical psychologist. I have uh, also have a longstanding interest in the area of trauma. Um, I did my PhD research in Arche in Indonesia, working with people affected by the tsunami and the conflict as well. Um, I then lived in New York for a period of time where I was working at the program, uh, the NYU Bellevue Hospital Program for Survivors of Torture. So we worked with people displaced or um, fleeing from humanitarian 
and war and conflict crises. Um, I'm now currently working at the Black Dog Institute as a clinical psychologist, and I'm involved um, in our bushfire support service. So we provide um, treatment to people affected by the bushfires, particularly emergency services workers and their families. Um, and that program has just been refunded to, you know, which will be broadened um, to offer a more, um, you know, comprehensive population of people that have been affected by disaster. Fantastic. Welcome, Amy. And we have our wonderful Melissa joining us tonight, who is our lived experience volunteer. Melissa, um, can you take a moment to introduce yourself and um, your experience in, on this particular topic? Of course. So my name is Melissa and I'm um, the Health Professional Engagement Manager with Black Dog Institute. So normally with the expert insights, I'd be working in the background with Carol to organise topics and panellists and to get these um, events up and running. But today I am joining you as the lived experience representative. So I live in Ballina in northern New South Wales, where we had extensive flooding, um, as you would all know, across the region in February and March. So this is the first time I've really lived in a disaster-affected area, and it's, um, in all honesty, depressing and anxiety-provoking, and it's really surreal, surprisingly surreal. So my house wasn't flooded. Um, I'm living in one of the few parts of Ballina that didn't get flooded that my friends and families' homes and businesses were flooded and um, I've provided direct support to them and I've been helping with the clean-up in Lismore and Mullumbimby in this time as well. Fantastic. Actually, that first question was for you. You know, I know that you've just given us a little bit of a summary of, you know, um, your your experience as a lived experience um, panellist tonight, but what was that experience like? Because I remember you moving to Ballina and getting quite excited and then being affected by these recent floods. Um, and, and, you know, where, where were you? What exactly happened? What did you see in that time? I know that, you know, you weren't necessarily directly affected, but what did you see in your community? No. Well, at the time, the, the rain was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And it really was the result of cumulative rainfall and the water having nowhere to go. So on the first day of flooding here, the first proper day of flooding, we had 280 mil of rain in 24 hours. And my sister who lives in the Biwar in the Glasshouse Mountains, who was also flooded. She had 460 mil within the same 24-hour period. So our streets here in East Ballina started to overflow with cars at that time, and that, that was people driving them to get them to high ground to keep them out of water and or to live in them on the streets because they, their houses were underwater and there were loads of people staying with friends and families and strangers in the neighbourhoods. So the streets were just swelling with people at the time. Um, after the, the flood, kind of after it stopped raining and we were able to get out to the towns, we went out to Lismore and Mullumbimby to help with the clean-up and Lismore was particularly shocking. So um, in Lismore, it's quite normal for there to be flooding. So most people live in two-storey places where the bottom floor isn't really used um, for living, but the second floor is. And in South Lismore, which is where I spent most of my time cleaning up, the mud and the water for this flood event went up as high as, you know, at 1.3 metres into the second floor. 
So people's homes were destroyed. They were throwing out furniture over their verandas, ripping out kitchens, carpets, everything. Um, Shipping containers had moved down the street and had lodged in the water and had lodged in people's backyards. And I guess the thing that was really um, shocking was everyone saw the pictures in the media as to which just kind of showed what it was like in those places but it's one thing to see a building covered in mud in a picture with a wall gone and a roof car on its roof but it's another thing to see that for kilometers and kilometers house after business after house after business and just see the extent of the devastation and how many people had lost everything Um, And then I guess when the second flood hit, which was a few weeks after that first one, that was really gave people a feeling of hopelessness, especially after they'd started the cleanup and some people had started their uh, work to fix the homes. So personally, I'd already experienced major anxiety around climate change and our inaction in that area generally. And this event has just really, really reinforced it, um, looking like feeling now and then looking into the future as well. Yeah. Anita, um, what are some of the findings coming out of, you know, major disasters? Because it sounds horrific, Melissa. I mean, the suddenness of it and the fact that it's, you know, as you said, it's not like once and then we do that restoration it was just again in that hopelessness right and at that moment I always noticed this in like the news uh, news programs right mental health is like spoken about like immediately um, and we want to kind of jump in there and do something but what 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 does the research tell us Anita around you know the the impact on mental health um, following disasters such as these where do we tend to see the spike in in worsening mental health conditions yeah um There's actually some really important research findings that are coming out of the Beyond Bushfires study, um, which followed uh, or conducted, looked at communities that were impacted by the 2009 Victorian bushfires to help us understand the impact um, of disaster on individuals, families and communities, but also to help us understand what actually supports their recovery after these disaster experiences. And so the, the, the... really good thing about this study is that it, um, you know, there was that 10-year follow-up, so it really is helping us build a picture of some of those longer-term impacts. Um, And what it's telling us is that, um, and I'll give you some examples of some of the statistics and key findings from that study. Um, It's, for example, it's telling us that five years after the bushfires, about 22% of people in those highly impacted communities, so these were communities where many of the houses were lost and there were fatalities, but these people reported symptoms of mental health disorders. So about a quarter of people were actually showing mental symptoms of mental health disorders, which were at twice the levels that we would expect to see in the general um, population. Um, It also showed us that the nature of social influences on a person's recovery is complicated, um, but there was really strong evidence to to confirm for us that social support is really critical and social ties really do matter. Um, One of the um, sort of really important findings was around the impact of bushfires on children's academic uh, progress, sorry, And it showed that uh, children in fire-affected areas 
that many of their academic progress actually fell quite substantially when compared to children in unaffected areas. Um, and what we also learned was that uh, those children um, learning in bushfire-impacted areas, the focus at school was more around wellbeing as opposed to um, academia. So teachers were focusing on supporting the mental health and wellbeing of children uh, more than usual. Um, so we do, we do. I guess looking at some more of those stats, there is um, an increase in some of those diagnosable mental health conditions, including PTSD, depression, and psychological distress. And one of the more interesting findings was around some gender differences, where um, we saw that men were more likely to report heavy drinking, whereas women were more likely to to experience PTSD when we were looking at some of those impacts sort of three to four years down the track. Um, so, yeah, definitely some, some important key findings and I think that we can keep in mind when we've had a lot of disasters that we've been dealing with lately um, and compound disasters. So these are really some really helpful findings for us when we're working clinically with people in terms of what we can keep an eye out for, um, not just in the immediate but also longer term across time. What's your most common like mental health challenge in that longer term? I mean, most people, what they think of it as trauma, right? It must be PTSD that most people experience. Mm. But is that the case based on the statistic? Is it something else? It's definitely not just trauma. I mean, we look at, um, and then really the whole premise for us at, at Phoenix is we look at the, the, the sweep, the gamut of impacts that people might experience following trauma. Um, PTSD is just one of those impacts or disorders, but, but certainly depression and anxiety are common, um, as well as some of those other psychosocial impacts. So changes to people's social support system. Um, as I mentioned, we might see um, people drinking more or engaging in risk-taking behaviour. So the, the impacts are definitely wide and, and we should think more broadly than just trauma and PTSD when we think about the impacts. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned social ties because it's definitely one of the ones that's such a protective factor. I might actually, Amy, I love to, I'm about to pull you in the conversation, but I actually might circle back to Mel because it's a good opportunity to ask her. Um, what do you think of some of the, do you actually see social ties being quite protective in your community? Like how do we see people connecting with each other after these floods? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, Follow-up um, immediately after the floods, the community was everything because it did take government quite a while to come in and help out with the recovery. But community really did um, self-organise and come together and many people formed small groups and then went out to flood-affected areas to knock on strangers' doors to offer them, you know, a helping hand to rip, rip kitchens out or um, help throw furniture out to offer medicines, beddings, um, clothing. There were lots of things. So that community, um, I guess, connection and networks and the feeling of, I guess, being valued enough for strangers to drive out and to offer that support, that community is really um, a huge protective factor. Yeah. Um Amy, I know that if you're like me, I'm a clinical psychologist and Amy and Anita as well. We talk a lot about social supports when clients come in. 
Why do you think it's so special? Because I emphasize it and it sounds like it's, you know, a lot of my clients kind of go, oh, is that really like, you know, that important? Because it's such a common thing that we talk about, right? Friendships and connection. Why do we think it's so powerful from a clinical perspective following disasters? I think there's a number of reasons, including that we're hardwired for the need for connection. If we look at that through an evolutionary perspective, if we're not one of the pack, we're the one that's likely to get picked off, you know, by the lurking tiger. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very much kind of wired into our DNA, I think, to need that social support. Um, And, you know, that's one of the reasons why in the aftermath of trauma, those connections are so valuable because it provides an informal processing space for people to really kind of make sense of and try to come to terms with, you know, the gravity of these situations. Yeah. Do you think it also allows us to potentially even pick up when somebody's not doing well um, in that space? Like, is it a, an important factor for potentially even like monitoring when somebody might be declining in their mental health? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the challenges in the kind of you know, all the different phases after trauma or after a large-scale disaster is to identify people that are perhaps struggling more than others and that community support can really help people, you know, um, make those those identifications and kind of check in with someone and say, hey, you know, how are you going and, and you know, hopefully direct people for how to link in with other supports. So absolutely, I think that's invaluable. <laughs> Amy, when you're working with people who've, you know, come out of disasters, what are some of the most common symptoms and challenges that you see in your clients when they step into the clinic for that first time after natural disasters? Mm. I mean, I think um, echoing what Anita said, it's it's a lot broader than just straight PTSD, but we certainly do see a lot of post-traumatic stress reactions that you know, might include things like intrusive memories. People often have like the, you know, they're replaying the events in their mind, sometimes thinking about what they could have done differently. Um, some people tend to feel really numb. Other people might feel really on edge or kind of hypervigilant to danger. Um, we see a lot of sleep difficulties, low mood, um, anxiety. I think Mel touched on climate anxiety. I'm hearing a lot more of that you know, kind of coming into the clinic with people really worried about not just recovering from what's been, but what's in store in the next flood season, the next fire season. Um, uh, You know, we see a lot of grief. That might be grief for the loss of a loved one, for a home, for animals, for the community, for nature, our environment. Um, Guilt maybe about, you know, personal kind of choices that were made or even just for surviving or not being as affected as other people in the community. Um, Substance abuse increases often, um, work and relationship difficulties. And we might see people that are experiencing, you know, difficulties, concentrating, sense of being overwhelmed or being more tearful than usual. Um, And a really, really big factor is just the kind of stress related to kind of practical concerns like housing, finances. Um, And for a lot of the people that I've been working with who are part of the emergency services, you know, there can be a lot of frustration around Um, you know, perceived lack of accountability or communication from the agencies that they're involved with. So there's a really broad range of ways, you know, that people can be impacted. So I guess we try and take a, a, you know, person-centred approach that looks at the individual kind of holistically. Yeah. Anita, you mentioned that there's this gender difference. Um, I've got it down here. Men are more likely to have problems with drinking and women are more likely to have PTSD. 
Um, what's the explanation for these two different trajectory? Are there any ideas about how these processes might work um, to cause these or even contribute to these gender differences following disasters? Uh, I guess some more work does need to be done in this space to help us understand the gender differences. Um, but interestingly, and, and I didn't mention earlier, one of the other findings is around the impact of uh, uh, partner vi- intimate partner violence and family violence. The study did show that there was an increase in family violence um, or in communities who were highly impacted by the bushfires disaster. So, again, something for us to keep in mind, I think, as clinicians when we're working with clients to ensure that we're we're checking in and doing risk assessments um, just to to help us with those findings. There is some research that's been done around anger um, and, you know, it's not uncommon as Amy was saying for people to experience heightened emotions, um, including anger. And we do find that, um, interestingly, one of the things, one of the findings that's come out is that um, for people who are experiencing anger, there tends to be an increase in um, a, a three-time increase um, in, in those people also experiencing um, suicidal ideation. Um, so, yeah, anger is an interesting one when we look at um, the impacts. I think. You're also um, saying well earlier that I think frustration and anger is, is common and normal. And I think given that we've seen a lot of communities that maybe some of that support hasn't come, um, but then for, for others in the community, that anger can continue for years. But that is a fascinating association, that anger and suicidality um, connection. And maybe even more important now, this emphasis on social connection, maybe it actually helps dissipate a little bit of that anger with that kindness and social support, you know, from the general community as well. Um, Now, Anita, are there any, like, do we see different types of trauma or mental health trajectory for different types of natural disasters because we've dealt with a lot in the last few years we've had bushfires we've had droughts as well which is a little bit slow moving but it's still a natural disasters and we've had floods you know it's quite a few things and Amy you've seen things like tsunamis right Um, in your research findings are there different kind of outcomes for these different natural disasters or are they do they seem to have similar trajectories uh, well, they do seem to have similar trajectories, but I guess the reality is we don't really know for certain um, because when we're sort of not quite there in terms of the research, it's not that conclusive that it can tell us. And I guess, you know, if we look, as you said, if we look at the last couple of years, we have had so many disasters, we've experienced so much, it would be difficult to study an isolated disaster because so many people have been impacted by so many um, disasters. I was actually looking at the stats in preparation for today, and um, since and this is just since COVID nineteen hit Australia in twenty twenty, there have been more than sixty disasters disasters sorry caused by natural hazards across Australia in those years. So that's looking at all the different bushfires. We you know we really have gone through a lot. So what what we're starting to see though in the research when it comes to those multiple disasters, is that there is a cumulative effect and it's additive rather than it having a sensitisation or desensitisation 
we do see that people are experiencing both mild to moderate mental health problems as well as diagnosable mental health disorders. Absolutely. Melissa, for you in your observation of the community and Amy, maybe in terms of your clinical knowledge, are there certain features that might make somebody more vulnerable or more resilient, you know, to natural disasters? I might go to Mel first. What have you observed in your community that might, you know, that really for you is like some of the positives that you got out of it that really conferred resilience? So, um, like I said before, the community aspect, the connection with one another and people helping each other. Um, the number of people I've heard who were affected by the floods, personal stories, um, and they just had strangers knocking on their door to say, what do you need done? Um, and those people who were being helped, not knowing their name, not remembering their face, what they look like, but that doesn't matter because that wasn't the point. The point was humans helping other humans is really um, huge. So as a collective level, that is definitely a protective factor. I guess a concern with that is that over time, people who weren't affected forget and they move on. And those people, we saw it with the bushfires, um, we'll probably see it with the drought, with the, um, we'll see it with drought, and we'll also see it with this uh, flooding, that people People move on and they forget. Um, it was a really weird experience for me after the floods uh, happened and I had to have about a, just under a week off, mainly because we didn't have any internet or 4G, so I couldn't connect with the outside world anyway. And then we just had conversations in the community about what was going on, where was safe to drive, what roads were open, what petrol stations had petrol because everyone was running out, um, what FPOS machine had cash so that you could get money. And all that was being talked about was the floods and then to connect again um, with the broader world and to hear people talking about Ukraine, which is obviously a huge world event and massively upsetting too, but just feeling really disconnected. Like my experience, my community's experience was so disconnected from what everybody else was focused on. And already it's such a short, we weren't even out of it. And it felt like everybody had already forgotten or they hadn't realised the severity of what had happened. So over time, that community protective factor will, I think, become less of a strength because it just won't exist as much anymore. Absolutely. Um, Amy, what about you in terms of seeing clients? Are there any, you know, sort of risk factors you look out for, but also strength that you think really helps a person move through disasters in a really resilient way? So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and it's one where I think we need to be really careful not to kind of attribute too much of the blame for resilience to the individual factors because I think that, you know, if we look at this through a trauma-informed lens, there's, it's really important to kind of keep in mind you know, pre-existing social inequities and differences or disparities in access to health services and that kind of thing, you know, and, and as Anita was mentioning, the kind of accumulation of trauma that compounds over time. So, you know, some people may seem less resilient in the face of flooding, but they may also have experienced, you know, a number of trauma or life stresses in the, you know, lead up to that. Um, you know, and in terms of like resilience, I suppose, you know, we've, we've been talking about social support. I think that is, you know, a really important factor. Um, and that, I suppose, has some links in a, in a way to attachment styles for people that maybe, you know, have less of an avoidant attachment style who are able to draw on those supports might um, fare, you know, better in some ways than people that perhaps are more isolated or more attachment avoidant. Yep. 
Anita, at a group level, are there any like um, vulnerable groups that you know don't recover so well from disasters? Um, well, we do know that unfortunately there are some groups who seem to be um, more impacted or have more risk factors, let's say, um, which end up serving as barriers to their or to, for their recovery. So unfortunately, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we know, are one vulnerable group that I think we need to definitely you know, um, think about how we can support, again, in the face of all these multiple disasters that we've experienced and, and how we can offer culturally um, sensitive support to those groups. Um, and as Amy mentioned, also people who are already vulnerable, so looking at prior mental health issues or pathology or traumas um, and those people who are just have a lack of resources, so low socioeconomic um, status or, or just generally having um, lack of resources such as housing, financial means, et cetera. So those, those are some of the groups that we might sort of see um, struggle a bit more when it comes to recovery from disaster. And following on from that, I'll just make a comment. There are lots of people here in the region that, um, that well, I guess the focus for a lot of people would having their basic needs met and especially in the accommodation space. So there are lots of hotels and motels and hostels that have offered free accommodation. Um, but those, a lot of those were booked out over the Easter break. So those people had to move out to a temporary, temporary accommodation. And some of those were as far away as Brisbane, which is about a two-hour drive away. And those people, many still worked, still went to school. School. They still had to meet tradies to talk about house fixing their homes. And so those people are just so disrupted. And there's been conversations as well that um, some people are being told that it will take around a year and a half to two years for them to be able to move back into their place because there's just so much work going on and there's so much demand that they just can't get to it. So those people are going to be massively at risk when um, over that time it's going to be really hard to live in temporary accommodation and some of those temporary accommodations are also camper vans and caravans as well. So with a few people in those, they become very crowded very quickly. And, and you know what's really interesting is that we're all ready to jump in to support with mental health when there are like really good pictures on television that really show the scale of disasters but actually the disasters as you're mentioning Melissa goes on and it's not it's not something we record and can show that's newsworthy but it's somebody struggling with housing meeting with tradies and ongoing problems connecting electricity or just accommodation the fact that they're commuting two hours away is that cumulative stress over time isn't it um, that's not seen on the news but that actually has this really powerful impact on mental health. So Mel, maybe it's turning to you. What what are some of the techniques you've used to stay resilient and you know be able to support your mental health through experiencing a disaster like this? What has helped you kind of maintain your well-being through this period? Yeah, so I have um, been, I've got a, a mental health treatment plan at the moment. Um, there was a significant wait time <laughs> to get into that, but now I'm in, which is really helpful. Um, talking about it with 
and sharing experiences with my neighbours and my friends and family is really helpful. And then all of the things that I normally do, I'm just ensuring that I do them even if I don't have the motivation and that is mindfulness. I love surfing. Um, surfing is a bit challenging here at the moment because the sewerage works in Lismore um, is still pumping sewerage out into the river so I can't surf in Ballina. I need to go to Byron. <laughs> um, but yoga and, um, yeah, friends and family. Yeah, and it's these moments that sometimes, you know, there's a temptation to discard, discard it and just kind of focus on the other stuff, but it's so important and it's really fantastic that you sort of kept up with all the things that you used to do to maintain And actually your I'll add to that, yeah, I'll add to that as well, purpose. I'm really grateful that I've got a job that I'm really motivated by and that I, I am driven to do. So that's really helped me along the way too. Fantastic. Amy, you've worked in like different disaster zones, right? And you've worked internationally as well. Do you see like differences, cultural diversity in the way people cope with disasters? Because it might be relevant here in terms of have people having different cultural backgrounds um, still experiencing the disasters, you know, together. What do you see in terms of cultural diversity? Um. I suppose, you know, in my experience, I have noticed um, some cultural components to how people cope. Um, I think, you know, in Arche, where there was a, a fairly collectivist culture and this kind of intersection between culture and faith, there was a lot of really kind of protective stuff happening there because it gave people, you know, support and structure, you know, for dealing in the aftermath of just horrific um, loss. You know, and I think um, as Mel's been describing, you know, it seems like the community spirit has been really incredible in the aftermath of the floods, um, you know, but what I'm hearing anecdotally is that sometimes, you know, in the adrenaline kind of stage or aftermath of trauma, that can be really strong. But as people move into the, you know, the medium to longer term phases um, where they're exhausted and they're frustrated, you know, trying to get their insurance claims processed and all of those kinds of things, some of that, you know, is tested. So, you know, with cultures where that is very much a part of, you know, the culture um, that can be, you know, I think quite protective, um, I think someone in the chat made a comment about, you know, the Pacifica community coming together in Lismore um, to help as a really strong presence. And I think, you know, that's an example of that really collectivist culture that, um, you know, digs in and, and helps out as well. So in terms of intervention and support, what do we do in this immediate aftermath if we're counsellors or psychologists working in flood-affected areas, Anita? Like what's the what's the evidence-based kind of recommendation at this stage? Because, I mean, from the sounds of it, Mel, we're still not out of it. <laughs> you know, we're kind of like still right in it. There's still there's still flooding happens. So what what's the evidence? What does the evidence say in terms of how do we treat when clients come in and they are experiencing these these disasters? So the evidence is still telling us that the current best practice is to in that initial or immediate aftermath class. So we're talking about those first few months and you know it could even be longer for some people where there's been multiple disasters or it's you know the, the impact has been drawn out but um the, the Australian Trauma Guidelines recommend um, that providing information, emotional support and practical um, assistance is the recommended approach. Um, and just listening to you talk, Mel, and, and both Amy, actually, it kind of makes sense really because I think and in, in, even in my clinical experience, 
people do tend to focus on those practical and immediate needs um, as well as on those social um, needs in those early sort of weeks or months following exposure or, you know, some of those impacts following disaster. Um, and so psychological first aid is one of those, is, a, is an approach that we would recommend. So it's a simple and practical approach that can be used to help calm people um, who are distressed but also to support their recovery from disaster. Do you know, even till today I hear about critical debriefing um, and then also the other term, psychological first aid. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those and whether they're evidence-based, Anita? Um, well, psychological first aid is evidence-informed. It's, um, you know, it's so tricky in the research space because it's a bit like with prevention strategies. It's hard to study something that hasn't, that we've prevented. <laughs> um, so psychological first aid is, evident, is evidence-informed um, and so that is the current best practice um, approach to supporting people and that is, it's it's something that even lay people can can um, can offer support to. So we do a lot of training, for example, to community members. We're currently rolling out some training to both community members and first responders, teaching them skills in psychological first aid as well as trauma-informed care so that people can support one another. Um, and as you said earlier, Carol, you know, even help look out for some of those early symptoms or when people um, might be declining or deteriorating. Um, so it's, it's an approach that people can, like people can provide with some training, but it's also something that we can do, you know, and as I worked as a psychologist in the emergency services sector, I used to go out and provide support at critical incidents and following disasters, and, and we were using that approach. We were providing practical and emotional support. And then obviously I've got to say people, that's what people seem to want. They want that practical assistance. They want to know that their loved ones are safe. They want to know, um, you know, where to get money or how to, to get housing. As you were sharing your story earlier, Melissa, I was thinking of a, a gentleman I spoke with. I went up to Townsville to, to support some of the community there following the floods a few years ago, and I spoke to someone there and he told me that he'd been living in a hotel for two years, and that was from the previous disaster. So he was still... He still didn't have housing sorted from the previous disaster and was dealing now with, with the, the flood, had been dealing with the flood situation then. So, you know, just talking to people, I think that's really where they seem to be at. And now that's not for everyone. There will be some people, perhaps people who might have pre-existing conditions or traumas, you know, they might, there will be people who do experience some symptoms of trauma who we may need to provide different types of support to, um, but certainly in that in the aftermath, we would say PFA is the best practice approach. Sorry, Amy, you might want to jump in. Because <laughs> I, I would love Amy to jump in and because uh, we know that psychological first aid, which sounds more like looking out for each other and knowing when to kind of seek help. How is that different, Amy, from something like formal critical incident stress debriefing and where does the evidence sit for something like that? Critical incident stress debriefing, I think, is an approach that kind of came about in the 80s that was, um, you know, I think with emergency services or first responders um, where there was a more structured approach to, you know, that I think a key component was 
recounting one's experience of the trauma, often in a group setting. Um, a, a Cochrane review, I think, done you know a decade ago, found that the evidence for that was pretty lacking. Um, you know, it didn't seem effective in reducing or preventing the onset of PTSD, and in some instances it was actually harmful. Um, you know, and, and, and that might be because it interferes with the natural recovery process or it might actually be further traumatising for some people. You know, I think it's, it's you know, really like the good news in the face of all of these disasters is that, you know, the research does show that the majority of people are quite resilient and do follow a natural rec recovery trajectory over the months and years that follow those events. You know, and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with people that are that do continue to struggle, but, you know, it, it is kind of, um, you know, it's something to be hopeful about that, you know, most people will, will recover with fairly low kind of psychological intervention over time. Yeah. And I think it's like a really important message because I do hear that um, just, you know, generally and sometimes even among psychologists is that they're not talking about it. They must be suppressing some sort of a trauma, but it's actually okay to have that person not want to talk about it because they are using actually some really effective coping skill at that moment and they're working through things themselves, right? And there's this myth that we have to kind of talk about it to be able to process the trauma and the critical debriefing seems to suggest that maybe is not the case. So... Mel, what kind of mental health support do you think is needed at this stage? I know that, you know, you've already mentioned that sometimes it's really hard when people have forgotten that you're in the flood affected areas and, and you know, that community support starts to break apart because people have kind of forgotten um, what's been going on. What, what do flood affected communities kind of need at the moment um, to really support your well-being? So I, we've touched on this quite a bit, actually, trauma-informed care, more practitioners who are skilled in that. I have had conversation, the first psychology appointment that I had as part of my mental health treatment plan, they weren't very, in, I didn't think they had a very good background in trauma-informed care and really didn't seem to connect with my experience. Um, so that's so important. Um, and I also think that easy access to mental health support and um, and ideally coordination of care as well. Um, Anita was saying that one of the three things that needs to be focused on in this few months following up was um, those ba having those uh, financial supports and um, the, the the basic support needs being met. So emotional, um, physical, health um, the, and social as well. And it's difficult for someone, I think, and, and I'm seeing this a lot, who has been massively impacted and they've lost everything and they're feeling really upset to know what's supports are out there, what's available to them, what they're eligible for, and how to connect with all of those. Because there is so much information out there at the moment. They just can't, I don't think there's not enough, there's not enough bandwidth for everybody to be able to navigate that on their own. Absolutely. Um, Anita, I've got on screen now some of the tools and resources um, that, you know, we'd like to promote on tonight's podcast. Could you speak to it since we, the, most of this is going to be a sound recording podcast <laughs> and people yeah. can't see the screen? Yeah, definitely. So one of the key resources for mental health professionals, including psychologists and counsellors, are the Australian Trauma Guidelines, as we call them for short, but the Australian Guidelines for the Prevention and Treatment of Acute Stress Disorder. Um, and PTSD and complex PTSD. 
So they've just been revised and the current version, it's, it's, it's a bit different to what we had early on. So it's a living online document, so you can access that online. Um, and it has just been revised. Um, so, yeah, that provides a guidance around the current best practice um, for treating trauma. Um, then we've got the Disaster Mental Health Hub. So there's a really broad range of information, resources and training for professionals. There's lots of really good sort of bite-sized sort of small chunks of training and information. I know we're all really busy. So if you've got a client, for example, with a specific issue, let's say anger or sleep problems, there's some really good resources there um, that you can access for specific um, issues such as that. Uh, we've also got currently got the Bushfire Recovery Projects. Um, so we're delivering, as I mentioned, trauma-focused or trauma-related training for frontline workers, so including community workers as well as emergency service workers. Um, so that's across Victoria and emergency service workers across Australia. Um, so they're all they're available. If you have any, any clients who might be interested or eligible for that, um, the information's on the website. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And for the people listening, um, we've actually popped that into the chat box as well because the resources are there um, and we'd love for people to use it. As you said, Melissa, there's sometimes like such limited bandwidth, but it's so important that practitioners kind of get on top of that because we can be that referral service. If we know our resources, we can direct our, our clients to it, right? Um, and maybe that's part of, of what we provide in that mental health space. Fantastic. All right. So um, there's another question here on Q&A. And I do apologize because I'm keeping an eye on it, wanting to get through some of our resources as well um, and, and missing some of these questions. I think there was a question by Rosemary um, in terms of the research reference for anger um, and the increased suicidal ideation that was mentioned. Anita, I was wondering whether uh, maybe we can kind of – Assuming that you can't come up with a reference off the top of your head, but maybe it's something we could send out to our audience member <laughs> um, a little bit later on. Um, and I think there's another comment here from Joy. One issue that triggered significant trauma in community members and workers was the loss of pets and not being able to be accommodated. That's a really interesting one because I also hear that coming out of uh, places like the Ukraine as well. We underestimate because they're family members, aren't they? And we've forgotten that even like just a loss of pets is, um, you know, a loss of a sense of bereavement as well. Um, and so that's a really interesting point that we kind of forget that those things are also happening and maybe they're not as apparent, but there's so much loss that we don't see um, at that level, at that community level. So with that in mind, I would love to turn to Amy as we're finishing up our podcast. You're a very experienced clinician in the space, having worked for many, um, many years. Um, and I'm not an experienced clinician in trauma. So what are some of the like three tips or maybe even like a single tip that you might <laughs> give to practice? Three is a lot of lot on you. So I'm just going to say one and maybe we'll do a bit of a whip around um, before we end this podcast. For practitioners, people as health providers in that mental health space, what's something we can keep in mind that could support, that would be really useful in supporting clients that come through coming out of disasters? I think it's going to, it's actually going to be a challenge to distill it down to just one, but um, I guess I would say like 
one of I think one of our main goals as clinicians is to foster our clients' self-efficacy and their own sense of their own ability to cope. So that means really encouraging them to think about, you know, their coping resources, whether they're social or other kind of, you know, emotion regulation strategies. Um, I would say, you know, don't be afraid of exposure therapy. I think it can be daunting for people that aren't, you know, experts in trauma. Um, you know, but we need to remember the client is the expert. So we need to kind of in themselves. So we need to kind of, you know, tune in to what they're ready and able to do and kind of take it at their pace. I think taking a, a stepped care approach where you make sure the client is adequately resourced with, you know, emotion regulation strategies before embarking on something like some kind of um, exposure therapy is a really important thing to do as well. Thanks, Amy. Melissa, you've mentioned that, look, your experience could have been improved upon recently. What is one of the tips that you might give our practitioners, um, you know, in terms of coming out of a disaster and what a client might need in that space? Yeah, so it's. I would say it's definitely um, what I've already mentioned, and that is a bit of help coordinating their everything that they need, not just their mental health, but the other things that they need to survive and hopefully thrive as well, because they just don't have the space. And also to be really mindful that whilst the major natural disaster has occurred now, it's still a long journey ahead that's going to be really painful and draining for those people. Yeah. So don't do a, like a six to 12 week manualized approach and expect things to, yeah, it's a, maybe it's a, a long kind of process. Um, and I think that's really, really good tip now. Anita, for our practitioners listening in, what's one, one tip you could give us before we end this podcast tonight? Carol, one's a tricky one. <laughs> Use the resources um, at Phoenix. Maybe that's a really... <laughs> a couple of things one is you know don't underestimate in those in the immediate aftermath the power of just providing people that emotional and practical support I think as clinicians with lots of training um we can you know we can we were quite competent and confident to use some of those trauma-focused treatments for example or other other um other interventions, but in that early period, I think some of those practical emotional and informational supports can be really, really important. So, you know, not to underestimate the importance of that. I guess just on the back of what Amy was saying, you know, to focus in on people's strengths that can get lost in when their people are feeling overwhelmed, um, but to tap into their strengths and, as Melissa was saying, just to normalise and validate their experiences and that recovery isn't um, quick sometimes you know we want to give people hope absolutely we do um but recovery can be a longer process for some so just to normalize and validate that as well I think from people's recovery journey some fantastic tips there from our experts um, tonight. So thank you very much for that. And I'm just sharing the screen again. Don't forget that um, at the Black Dog Institute, we also have plenty of resources. The one we are really promoting at the moment that we love more people to use is we don't want to forget about our mental health professionals out in these disaster zones as well. Um, the Essential Network for Health Professionals, it helps connect health workers to a network of essential resources support to manage your own stress, maintain good mental health. So do check us out um, because there's so many resources for people um, who are who are at this front line, right? And GPs, um, psychologists, um, and our allied health. 
please do visit us on our website um, and check out all the resources uh, at Black Dog Institute. I want to thank our amazing panel members tonight. Thank you so much, Amy, Anita, and Melissa for joining us. So good night, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.